section you have to walk through or come to is where they sell the fruits and vegetables. Now, I don't know why they put it right there at the front because I've heard that they arrange the store in a way that you have to walk to the very back to get the items that you really need and hopefully you'll buy other things. And so when Joe has to wake up, go to the grocery store, you know, late at night because his wife noticed that the milk gallon was put back in the fridge and it was empty and has to go get milk, he has to go through the whole store, grab milk and eat. But that doesn't explain why they put fruits and vegetables right at the front. Maybe it's because no one pops into the grocery store to buy an apple or anything like that. Or maybe it's the way of guilting those who don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, saying, hey, you probably should try these out. I don't know, but they don't do that. It doesn't explain why they would put that there. But this section, this fruit and vegetable section, usually goes by another name. The produce section, right? And you got to love English because I don't know why it's called the produce section. Maybe it's because fruits and vegetables are produced by farmers and plants and they're, or they're producers in, in that kind of biological sense of that they take light and turn it into food for us. But it's called produce section because produce is produced. you got to love English. But you come to this section, this produce section, and you notice that produce is naturally produced. It's a natural result of those plants. A tree doesn't have to think about, wait, I'm going to produce an apple. It produces an apple. Asparagus doesn't have to think about what it has to do to be asparagus. It's just asparagus. Love it or hate it. It's just asparagus. It's just naturally what it is. And it naturally produces what it's designed to produce. And the same is actually true for the Christian. For the Christian, new life naturally has results. It naturally produces things. It produces uh, actions and, and character and these things in our lives that the Bible describes as fruit. That this new life has a fruit that we produce in our lives. That whether we read in Romans how there's natural fruit coming from us, whether it's producing death or life, or Galatians 5 where it talks about the spirits working in us and now producing this fruit of the spirit, that we naturally start producing things in our life and that the Christian who has been changed, who has been grabbed by the gospel, who has come to understand who Jesus is, who has been granted this new life in Christ, who has now been changed from the inside out, now naturally living in that new life starts to produce fruit, starts to produce things that are natural to that new life, that natural to that spirit that is generating these things, regenerating us from the inside out. I say all that because when we come to Acts 19, we see the church being the church, being transformed, and now producing this fruit. And in particular, we see now how the world reacts to this changed life. How the world responds to the church being of, composed of changed people. And so if you have your Bible, in verse 21. If you guys remember from last week, we were talking through this, or if you remember in Acts 19, it's been leading us. God's been working this powerful kind of ways in the city of Ephesus, so much so that um, uh, the the people in the church are now are growing in their faith and giving up practices that were kind of leading them astray from God. And, and because of this growth, it start, picks up the story. Uh, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved 
in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must go, must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. But in that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made uh, silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may be... When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Eratardus, man, okay, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the um, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the crowd town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. It shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's a passage about what's happening when the church is impacting the city of Ephesus and how can we summarize what's happening here. And we can take the bigger picture, I think, and say simply, the new life produces a changed life. I think that's what we see in not just this passage, but in the whole chapter, that the new life of Christ in the believers produces a changed life. And it's interesting because in this passage, we don't see that so much as the Christians are working, but we see that as how the world now is coming against the Christian church, is that they are recognizing there's a change happening, a changed life that's taking place that's even impacting the city's trade. And so we can say the new life produces a changed life. Now when someone knows the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, knows the truth that God sent his son not only to live for us, but to die for us and to rise for us, to give us this new life, a new life and following him, a new life that now transforms us from the inside out, that we now, re- now live this new life and we'll have new thoughts, new actions, new society. And that has implications for the society around us and how it responds. 
the new life produces a changed life. I think it's interesting because when we take this big picture, we don't, as I mentioned, we don't really see the church in action so much in this passage, but we do see the world or society in action as it comes against the church. Because what we're seeing really is the ripples of the gospel. That the gospel came down and impacted in the city of Ephesus, and people are coming to know Christ, and their lives are changing, and now these ripples are spreading throughout the whole society, and we see how the world's responding. And when we see this in light of what came before, particularly verses 18 through 20, it makes sense about how the world responds. Because if you remember from last week, or if you read back in verses 18 through 20, we see the Christian church being convinced and convicted that God is God, and they need to follow Him and only Him. We see these people, these Christians in Ephesus, who used to be involved in these other practices, these magic practices, looking for power here and there, start giving that up, burning these items so they can follow God all the more. And so we see their life in Christ is now impacting how they live in society, so much so that now Paul is looking around and says, wow, the church is getting sent some friends of his to prepare the way. But this change that's happening in the church also brings about conflict. This change in, the, in these people's lives brings conflict. Because a conflict starts when a certain silversmith, it says, Demetrius, starts to wonder, what's going to happen when more and more people start following Christ? Because my trade is I make these nice little silver idols of Artemis, our, our goddess that we worship in this temple in Ephesus, this, this, this temple that is a great wonder of the world that people know about, that we have this statue in the middle of an Artemis that they say it was a meteorite that fell from the sky, and whether it was formed by the meteorite or not, but it's this image of Artemis, and they say we worship that, so he, he would craft those and sew those, and it brought no little trade, it says, to the craftsmen of the city. That this was big business. And he's looking around and he's seeing these actions of the Christian church. He sees these Christians who used to maybe be even people who bought from him and bought these idols start changing how they lived. And sort of so much so that they even would be willing to burn their magic books worth this vast amount of money. And he goes, wait a minute. What's going to happen when this church spreads and when more and more people know who Jesus Christ is, maybe they won't be buying my idols as much anymore. And he gets concerned that his craft would be dismissed. He actually knew the best case scenario on our point of view that what would happen if the gospel spread? His business would be impacted. As more and more Ephesians came to know who Christ is, his business of selling idols would be diminished. As Christians are changed from the inside out, they would no longer be his um, customers. They would no longer seek solace in the things of Artemis, but would seek God and him alone. That he's actually recognizing what happens when the Christians are changed from the inside out and they live a different way. Their practices are changed. Well, he's a pretty crafty guy. <laughs> he's a craftsman. And so he knows how to get to his fellow craftsmen, craftsmen, if I can say that word. And so he calls them together. This uh, Demetrius is probably more in line of a guild master. And he says, okay, guys, listen up. These Christians, they're pretty crazy. They're willing to change how they live. 
They're giving away, they're giving up their old ways and now following this new way and we're concerned about it and our money's going to be impacted. But he knows, hey, I can't just say your wallet's going to be impacted. He's got to maybe cloak it in something else. And so he starts speaking in nationalistic and religious terms. He says, not only are our money going to be impacted, but our great Artemis, our temple that we worship at, and guess what? Maybe even our goddess might not be recognized in all of Asia anymore. He's really cloaking this, this concern about the impact on his wallet in these, these nationalistic and religious tones. Which is kind of funny because when we see some, typically some fervor that is, might be nationalistic or some of that, it really sometimes a lot just boils down to money and people's impact on that. I'll just let you ponder that for a while. But it's funny because when you read this, you see behind even all these concerns or idols that might grip people's hearts lie probably the more insidious idol of the God of money clutching and controlling how people live. And this conflict happens as these people are wrestling with this change and they're seeing the fact that the new life brings or produces a changed life in these Christians and they think it cannot go any further. And when you see this and the impact it has, we have to realize it has or, uh, implications for us. It's true for us as well. For when we see this new life being lived out in the Christian church and they're changing so much that craftsmen of the city are recognizing then when we look at our lives, we say, is this new life that I believe I have and know I have in Jesus Christ changing me? Is it truly impacting me? Am I letting it marinate through my whole body and soak through me and clean out the corners of my life so that I'm living for Christ and Christ alone? Am I living in such a way, following Him, that people actually can recognize this change is happening? That people actually recognize that the Christian community is not just like any other community in our culture or in our society or in our community, but it's actually made up of people who are being transformed. Sometimes slowly, sometimes rapidly, but they're being transformed and we can see that transformation happening. And we look inside and say, am I engaged in things that a Christian shouldn't be engaged in? Am I engaged in things that are pulling me away from my worship of God or have no place in the Christ follower? And I know this gets into a sticky situation because there are maybe debatable issues that some people take a stance on here and some people take a stance here, and I don't want to get legalistic and imply there's a list of rules or morality to you that sits outside of your relationship to Christ. But this is an urging that all of us need to look inside and see, am I truly following Christ as he's called us to follow him? Am I truly being allowing him to money and change how I use what he's given me for his glory? Am I letting him do that? And we need to apply this first and foremost, that we have this new life and it produces a changed life. We need to lean into that and have our Christian communities lean into that as well and so that people actually will notice changes happening as we seek to follow Christ. 
But I said, one of my, one of the, how I understand this works is it happens from the inside out. It happens as the Spirit applies the Word and changes us from the inside out. And so that means that we shouldn't put expectations of change on people who don't know Christ. So often we operate like we can somehow make them Christians if they just acted like Christians. And we want to plaster a veneer of Christianity over someone's actions and say, there, we've done it. But that doesn't work. It doesn't change anyone. And as you notice in this passage, the Christians weren't marching, they weren't protesting, they weren't even objecting to this works of idols. Actually, they were trusting in God to change people, and that change leads to Christians walking away from that way of falling false things. But so often, from good motives, and for good reasons, we start focusing on anything. But that this leads to moralism, a list of rules and expectations, and it's just dressing up unrepentant people to look like they're something they're not. And you can be a quote-unquote good person that can follow a list of rules well, and you look like and can speak the language of the Christian church, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're still lost and doomed to spend eternity away from him. And so you can, you can dress up your life all you want, and we can force that on people all we want, but if they don't know Jesus and that transformation hasn't happened in their hearts or is happening in their hearts, it affects no lasting change. Because we believe that it's not how you act that's the power of salvation. It's not how you dress. It's not how you, you treat people. That's not the power of salvation, but it's the gospel that's the power of salvation. That when we know the truth of Jesus Christ and we know how he lived for us and he died for us, how he stood in our place and took our sins upon him and how he now gives us a, a, a way in which we can relate to God and how he brings us to God, how he bridges that gap that sin has caused between man and God. When we know that, when the gospel grabs hold of us and we know how he has given us his spirit to dwell in us and how that spirit applies his life to us and now how we stand before God as a righteous son and daughter in Christ, when we know that, it changes us. And we start to naturally start... doesn't result because we start acting away. No, he changes us and pulls us forward and we start living out as we're called to live. But when we do that, we should expect pushback. We should expect conflict usually from people really close to us. Maybe people that we walk through life together and they saw us when we're at our worst and now they're seeing us as we start to struggle with how we follow Christ and we start putting that in place in which means maybe we change how we do this or that. And so people start making fun of the morally principled. It's a fun game you'll see. People like to make fun of those who try to stand on their principles. And they'll say, wow, I can't believe you don't, you don't let your kid do this or that. Or I can't believe that you're not engaging in this behavior or that player, that, that behavior. Man, everyone does it. Or man, you just don't want to be, you're just like a stick in the mud. You're just not fun anymore. How can you have fun? And they say, you can feel that pressure build as we start to live this new life and walk in this newness of Christ people can come against it and we need to stand firm firm expecting that conflict knowing that we have this new life because the new life produces a changed life and we can see these christians staying firm because this this change not only brings this conflict but it brings this confusion men kind of riled up as they they storm out in the street 
It's almost like a mini riot. They grab people and they head to the theater, this massive theater in, of Ephesus that can hold maybe around 25,000 people and they're packing it up as these, as these people are running through town just chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they grab some, some followers of Paul, people they knew were part of this church, these Macedonians, these foreigners. They grab them and they pull them into, into this mass and there's chanting and it's mass confusion. So much so that people are trying to quiet at different times and a, a delegation of the Jewish people send Alexander and, and maybe he's saying, hey guys, we're Jewish, but we're not like those guys over there. And he's trying to quiet the group and they, they chant over him. And so for two hours, this mass of people, this chance, great, is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I love this episode, not because of what's happening, but just because of what it shows. Because when this riot starts, we see it starts with this great, the same statement about Artemis, and it ends with the same statement about Artemis, and that's all that can say. This is not a reasoned dialogue or an argument against what Paul was teaching. This is not people gathering together and saying, we don't agree with the gospel. These are about the gospel. They see the effects of the gospel, and their response is, well, we can just drown them out by shouting a little louder. I love how one commentator said it. He says, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is shout itself hoarse. And that is what they were doing. Just trying to drown out the gospel by shouting loud. Well, I don't know if that just does not sound, that sounds um, kind of familiar. I don't know if you guys have been to social media recently or have just looked outside. But it seems like in our society, the modus operandus is to shout a little louder. That people like to shout and they like to shout loud. And if they don't agree with you, they shout a little louder. And if they want to dialogue with you, they shout a little louder. And, you know, they just shout out. There's, there's no more dialogue. There's no, those, there's no um, actual engagement with maybe the, the argument. They just want to yell louder. And it seems like the people who get their way are the ones that shout the loudest. And I can understand this. I mean, I come from a pretty loud family. And uh, we, we talk, and I, people might say it looks like we're having arguments. We're not really having arguments, but the level does increase, like, through the conversation. And you're start, we, we get loud at each other, but we're not. We're just having a good conversation. But we, we know that to drive the point home, you have to say it with a little bit more energy and, and a little bit more force. And it seems like that's what's happening here to the nth degree as they are just shouting louder, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when we see that, we see the truth that we need to be willing to stand firm in such opposition. Because it is a tough thing to stand firm on what is true when everyone is chanting and yelling something different. It is a hard thing to stand in the middle of a culture that's screaming something that we don't believe in, and they're yelling it louder, and they'll yell insults, and they'll yell things if you don't agree with them. It's a hard thing to stand in the midst of a riot of confusion and yet not give an inch. It is a hard thing, but yet we're called to do that. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, society, the culture that does not believe, 
that's going astray, that's going in a different way, will shout, my mic is all messed up, will shout louder and louder. And we're called to stand firm on the truth of who Christ is and the life He has called us to and not give an inch. As we stand firm. Now we don't just wade in into any battle punching and swinging and, and dropping truth bombs. We need to have discernment. That we need to have the courage of Paul when he says, hey, there's a riot going on, let's go. And he's about to head out into this theater filled with people who don't like him. But he has some good friends who are like, hey, Paul, hold back a minute. We don't know what these people are about to do. And so we, I think we see there a great picture of being courageous and standing in the truth and saying, I will stand in front of anyone and proclaim Jesus Christ no matter what. But we also have to have, the, have, to have those friends who have discernment and say, yeah, maybe not right now and maybe not in this way, but we're going to stand true, but we're not going to go right into the middle of a riot and get killed. And so we need to have that discernment on how we go into conversations knowing that we're called to proclaim the truth, but we're called to proclaim the truth with love and winsomeness in ways that people are going to respond. And I think this all comes because we know this discernment and, and this courage comes of a result of this new life we have in Christ. Because a new life produces a changed life. And in all of this, this passage ends with I am convinced we see God's providential hand at work. This passage ends as he settles them down. And you can read this and you say, well, I don't think, I don't see God mentioned anywhere in that text. I don't see God, his, him, him using this clerk mentioned in that text. But the truth is that Luke, the writer of Acts in the early church, was firmly convinced that God's providential hand was at work in all these actions. And so when the clerk stands up and he defends the Christians and says they have done nothing wrong and if you have something against them, take it to the courts, he's actually fallen to of how God used uh, Gallio in the city of Corinth and how he has given kind of protection to the Christian church in some sense. And so God's doing that same thing for the Christians there as he demisses this crowd, and they are protected, and they're, they're freed from this direct action from this mob. And when, we, when we're reminded of that God works in these ways, it just reminds us how there are actually good aspects of a good government. I don't, I don't know how you feel about government right now, but there are good aspects of a good government because they keep the peace. They allow people to be safe and they allow the gospel actually to spread. Which is why we read in, in 1 Timothy, Paul talking about how he goes, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings dignified in every way is that he knew we should pray for the government to do what it's supposed to do and keep the peace because then mobs are not going to be dragging Christians out of their homes and killing them. That we can look around the, the, the world right now and we see where government does not reign and we see this happening. We see Christians being at the mercy of stronger people being pulled out of their homes and being persecuted. And so we need to have... Have, have be praying along with Paul and knowing and seeing the truth that God works through government to keep it peaceful so the gospel can spread all the more in that. And we pray for this newness of life because we pray 
for the fact that this new life needs to impact more and more people so the gospel changes people and they come to know who Christ is. The new life produces a changed life. So what do we do with a passage like this when we see basically the world come against Christianity, come against Christians? Well, we need to be changed. And the only way we are changed is by going to Christ. Which means we need to let the gospel and the word of God dwell richly in us. If you know Jesus Christ, then we need to be pursuing him and putting his word inside of us, preaching from the inside out. We need to be following him and striving after him, knowing that it's not our own effort that does this, but it's him working in us, changing us from the inside out and bringing us to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We need to know the gospel and apply it again and again. Every Monday morning when we wake up and we're dragging ourselves out of bed going, oh, I don't know what awaits us, and you're feeling the doubt, and you're feeling maybe the fear, and you're feeling just the unknown, we need to again preach the gospel to ourselves about how Christ has saved us. He has given us this new life, and no matter what is going on in this week, I know I can walk in that truth and be changed. We walk in this truth and follow him no matter what. So we need to let the gospel and the word of God dwell in us richly. And then we need to stand firm in conflict and confusion. This passage is all about how the world responds to the Christian church, how the world responds to the gospel changing lives. And we need to stand firm like the Christians of Ephesus did as there was conflict and confusion reigning around them. That when we step into our workplace, when we step into the society, when there's so much conflict against the truth of Christ, when there's so much confusion about what even is truth, we need to stand firm on who God is, who Christ is, and what how loud people get chanting down what we believe, we stand firm. And then we need to look to Christ for that newness of life and the change in life that we trust in our Savior. We trust in our God. We don't look to our own actions. We don't look to how well we have lived life. We don't look to how well we can follow a list of rules. We look to Christ. And so when we stumble and fall, which, guess what? We will stumble and fall when we mess up, when we speak too harshly or speak too quickly, when we do what we shouldn't have done or don't do what we should have done. When we're in that midst of that, we don't look to how well we could do better, but rather we look to Christ and ask Him to keep on changing us, keep on transforming us. Give us your strength. Give us your truth so they can walk in that newness of life. And then we take that step out of faith and live for him every day. But we look to him to, because he is our hope. He is our Lord. And in a world of confusion and conflict, he is our solid ground. So we look to Christ for that newness of life. And we always remember that this new life that we've been given naturally starts producing a changed life every single day, bit by bit, as God is at work. Join me in prayer.